All right, we're looking at Genesis uh, 14, our proof text for today. Uh, I mean, our, base, our basic text. We're looking at a Christian view of war and uh, just warfare. And today I'll make some comments. This, this, this sermon, I'll make some comments about Ukraine, try to make some applications. And uh, you're going to understand why I'm reading this from the last sermon. This is uh, Genesis 14, 16. And he brought back all the goods. This is Abraham and his forces. And also brought, again, uh, his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. So he engaged in just warfare and rescued the people, not just Lot. Now we're going to take a uh, we're going to give you a little history here. We're going to look at a basic Christian view of war and make some comments. So having established that the use of the sword, that is weapons that kill, sword, gun, is lawful in dealing with criminals, self-defense and just warfare, we would do well to briefly consider the Christian view of war in general before making particular applications of the situation in Ukraine. I'll finally get to that today. Many of the early Christians, the Apostolic Fathers, objected to serving in the military of a heathen state because one would be involved in enforcing the policies of rank idolaters or one could be required to worship idols. The influential father of Latin theology, Tertullian, and his full name is Quintus Septunius Florens Tertullianus, A.D. 150 to circa 220, some say 240, one of the greatest of the early church fathers, expressly forbade Christians from serving the military because of the idolatry practiced in the Roman military, even because the army's ensigns, their shields and banners, bore images and pictures of idols. <clears throat> so should a Christian serve in a pagan state? No. In the New Testament, we do have a record of at least two centurions who believed in Christ and became Christians. A possible third centurion converted is the one in charge of the crucifixion, who upon seeing the miraculous events connected with the, with the crucifixion proclaimed, truly this was the Son of God, Matthew 27, 54. And in Luke 23, 47, the account says, So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. Possible he became a Christian. We're not positive, but it's possible. But there are two that we're very sure of. In John 8, 5-13, our Lord commanded the centurion, commended the centurion for his great faith in contrast to the Jews. I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. That's the one who he told Jesus, just speak the word. you got the power. Just speak the word. He'll be healed. This centurion was a leader of an occupying army that was there to keep peace among the Jews, not permit riots or insurrections. Whether he remained in the army is not revealed. We don't know if he remained in the Roman army. The second centurion, Acts 10, 1-2, was a devout God-fearer. That is, he was in the process of converting to the Old Testament revelation who became a Christian under Peter's gospel preaching. His house contained the first Gentiles to receive the baptism of the Spirit, Acts 10.44, and he was probably the first Roman to have a Christian church which met in his house. Just read Acts 10 and 11. Once again, the text does not reveal whether or not he remained in the military. 
Now, once Constantine was converted to Christ, and I have converted here with quotation marks around it, uh, there's evidence he was not a sincere Christian, but he became a professing Christian, and Christianity became the original official religion of the state. This was A.D. 312. And the ensigns of the Roman armies were changed from idols to crosses. Most theologians had no problem with Christians serving the military in a Christian state. This is the view of Augustine. That's Aurelius Augustinus, 354 to 430. It became common to view military service as acceptable, except for the clergy, uh, perhaps due to the post-apostolic church's shift towards sacerdotalism or uh, sacramentalism. <coughs> the Old Testament priests weren't to serve in the military, so they said ministers shouldn't serve in the military. They shouldn't be shedding blood. That was their view. This is the view of the medieval church. This is the view of the ancient church. The position of the church in the Middle Ages was that the military was a lawful calling and that Christian states can engage in war. However, like the early fathers, they taught that the clergy must not take part in warfare, although they can encourage laymen to go into battle. <clears throat> now, some of the problems of the post-Constantine era throughout the Middle Ages are as follows. Number one, the clergy, bishops, monks, priests, were allowed to take up the sword under imperial or papal authority to, to exterminate idolatry and heretics. Total, that's totally unbiblical. This... Result. Uh, this practice was a result of two errors. A. In the medieval era, there was a mingling of the spheres of church and state. Preachers of the gospel have the power of the keys alone. That is church discipline, spiritual discipline, not physical discipline. Not the power of the sword, which belongs to the civil magistrate. And then B. <coughs> In the biblical law order, people are not to be executed for idolatry and damnable beliefs unless. Such persons are publicly advocating their demonic teachings and are attempting to overthrow a Christian law order. People get this wrong about the Old Testament. You could be a sojourner in Israel, and you could love Baal or Ashtaroth, but you couldn't publicly advocate for it. People didn't go around like a secret service trying to find out who didn't love God and kill him. It's not true. It was only those who tried to overthrow the law order by publicly promoting it. That was a civil offense. The sword is never to be used to coerce conversions, which, of course, are always phony in those instances. Number two, due to the Roman Catholic Church's false and superstitious teaching regarding sacred places and pilgrimages, the Church engaged in the Crusades uh, into Muslim territory with great amount of slaughter and savagery. The Crusades, at least initially, were not defensive or justifiable wars. Jerusalem had been in Islamic hands for centuries. They weren't persecuting or killing Christians in Jerusalem. It was not a justifiable war. When the Muslims attacked Europe and Constantinople, a war, uh, and Constantinople, a war was justified. Okay, when they were conquering Christian lands, yeah, you, you try to stop them, and it, that's totally justifiable. Throw them out. <clears throat> During the Crusades, bishops became renowned as military men wielding the sword. And these holy wars were carried on by the church to such an extent that it became a part, so to speak, of the church itself in the form of different order of knights. There were orders of knights who 
were expert warriors. You know, there's the Knights Templar and different knights and so forth. This warlike spirit became so common among the clergy <clears throat> that whenever anything was to be gained, they were ready for war. Now, that was inconsistent with the teaching of the Middle Ages. Uh, but you have to understand that the, the medieval church was very corrupt. And uh, I've studied the, the Crusades. And, and, and example, you have a vast army marching toward the, the Promised Land to conquer the Muslims. In the front of the, this uh, giant parade of men, and they had their families in the back, well, actually, they had a bunch of prostitutes in the back. But they have a giant banner of the Virgin Mary with some sayings on it, worshiping the Virgin Mary. Uh, then in the back, they've got their prostitutes and perhaps some of their families. And uh, they were very corrupt. Let's put it that way. <clears throat> the Protestant reformers and the churches that followed their lead believed that Christians had the right to use the sword, but limited serving as soldiers to being in countries or city-states that had adopted Protestantism. You're not to use the sword to support something, an alien law order, a pagan law order, or even a Roman Catholic law order. They abandoned the papal churches, teaching that the clergy should not take up arms or shed blood, even in a lawful war. They allowed ministers to fight. <coughs> Protestants on many occasions took up arms to defend themselves from Romanist armies when the Roman Catholic Church sought to annihilate the Protestants. There were wars in, against Holland by Spain, there were many wars in Central Europe, uh, in Germany, in, in Switzerland. In fact, an alliance was made for mutual defense among Swiss cantons, which was an idea of Zwingli, circa 1522 to 23. The Council of Bern even constituted itself the patron and protector of persecuted Protestants. Zurich entered into a Christian civil league with Constance based on common Protestant beliefs, promising to defend each other if attacked by Romanist persecutors. So, can you take up the sword to defend yourself, uh, have the civil magistrate make an army, your Christian commonwealth? Can you take up the sword to defend yourself against people who are there to kill you because you believe in Jesus and you believe the Bible is the only infallible word of God and you don't hold to the Apocrypha and all these, you don't worship idols and so forth? And the answer is absolutely. Zwingli, sad to say, lost his life in battle serving as a chaplain to Zurich's small army at the Battle of Capel. A great loss. And then, of course, once he's dead, things will shift to Calvin. Things will shift to Geneva. The French Huguenots defended themselves uh, as well with less success. The Protestant armies did not try to spread the gospel by force but only sought to preserve the true preaching of the gospel within their Protestant territories or as communities of faith in a Romanist nation, for example, France. And, you know, the, the stuff that went on, <clears throat> people got carried away. They're, they're in a, basically a Roman Catholic, like the Huguenots. And this is not all of them, but some of them. They got carried away. They go into Roman Catholic churches, and they're smashing the cross and the crucifixes, and they're smashing the idols, and and all this stuff. And Calvin is saying, don't do this. You're just going to stir up a storm against yourself. Uh, but they certainly believed in self-defense. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to smash idols, but there are times when it's simply not wise. <clears throat> if the Protestants did not take up arms in self-defense, the Roman Catholic Church and their patrons would have completely annihilated them. There would be no Protestant church. They would have killed all the Lutherans. They would have killed the Reformed churches. Well, let's look at some applications from true biblical teaching. 
Our study of the use of the sword for personal defense, fighting crime, and prosecuting just warfare leads us to consider a number of conclusions and applications of the biblical principles considered. Number one, Christians must not participate in offensive wars of conquest, colonialism, or imperialism. Unbiblical. It's unbiblical. If a war does not have a biblical justification, such as self-defense, or coming to the aid of a professing Christian, or like-minded ally, then it is immoral to participate in such a war. And so obvious examples would be Germany in World War I and World War II. Now, Germany attacked Belgium and then France because they thought that they were going to be attacked, and let's get, let's get it involved first making themselves guilty of beginning the First World War. You don't do that. And that's, what Putin, that's Putin's excuse. Well, we have to def defeat Ukraine because they're getting so friendly with the West, they might, they might attack us, so we have to defeat them first. No, 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 no. You can't go beat somebody up because you think down the road he might beat you up. It's unjust. It's unlawful. Such obvious, um, some obvious examples of uh, unjust wars, of course, World War I, World War II, a professing Christian should have refused to participate in such a war. I'm talking about Germans, even if it meant, even if it meant prison. You know, it's interesting. I've studied World War II very thoroughly. If you were against killing Jews and you said, I'm not going to do that, they didn't put you to death. They'd transfer you back to Germany. There were generals who were, there were a lot of Lutherans, and there were, a lot of, there were some generals who tried to help Jews. Now, they lost their jobs, and so, but they weren't put to death. They didn't put people to death who said no. You'd get fired, you'd get reassigned, but you weren't put to death. So this idea, oh, we had to obey orders. No, you didn't. You, it's never lawful for a Christian to obey an unbiblical order. It's just completely stupid to say that, especially when you've got somebody like Hitler or Stalin or Joe Biden, who's thoroughly evil to the bone. <clears throat> Professing Christians should have... Refused to participate. The British wars against the Zulus and then the Boers. The British wanted the Zulu land. They wanted to use it. They wanted to subjugate the Zulus. The Zulus weren't hurting the British. They already had agreements. But they decided, well, we want that. We're going to go take it. And they started the wars with the Zulus. Totally unjust. Totally unjust. And then the war with the Boers... Uh, was bad as well, and of course that's where we get concentration camps were originated by the British, not the Germans. They had concentration camps where uh, thousands upon thousands of civilian women and children died. This was the British that did this. Very unjust, very wicked. All for colonialism, all to make money. And that's how Winston Churchill became quite famous. He was a correspondent covering the war against the Boers, and he was in a train, and the train was... Uh, uh, conquered, <laughs> and he was taken prisoner, and he escaped in the middle of the night. It's, it's an amazing story. He was a great writer, and he was a correspondent, and then he became very famous because he escaped and made his way back to the British. It's an amazing story. Uh, I would read his, uh, he's got like an autobiography that's just a, a, an excellent read. The United States attack against Iraq, a nation that had not attacked us and did not participate in 9-11, what are we doing doing that? We had no business doing that. Well, they might have weapons of mass destruction. Well, it turns out they probably gave them away to Syria or they weren't there. But we don't have business to do that. That was totally unbiblical. 
the attack of Russia on Georgia, Chechnya, and Ukraine, all of which were totally unjust and wicked. These attacks are an attempt to reestablish to a degree the Soviet Empire. And we know from speeches by Vladimir Putin that his big hero is Joseph Stalin, a mass murderer, every bit as evil as Chairman Mao, every bit as evil as Pol Pot, every bit as evil as Adolf Hitler. Probably killed more people than Adolf Hitler did. And uh, that's his hero. Any Christian who participates, especially the war against Ukraine, a largely 98% professing Christian people should be excommunicated. And examples could be multiplied. Now, if you're in Russia, uh, you can say, I'm not going to fight. Now, you'll go to prison. You might get 10 years. Or you can try to flee the country. But if you go to Ukraine because the government tells you to, and you fight against Ukraine, which is an unjust war, where innocent people are being murdered, they have every right, and they should try to kill you. And you deserve to die. It's better to go to prison than it is to commit murder for a wicked, evil dictator. And examples could be multiplied. That's just a few off the top of my head. There's all sorts of unjust wars. Number two, Christians must not join or participate in a military that supports a pagan, atheistic, or apostate law order. <coughs> I think it'd be incredibly stupid for a Christian to join the U.S. military today. What are you supporting? Are you supporting a Christian nation? No, you're supporting sodomite rights, transgendered perversion, feminism, an ungodly, wicked form of feminism, sodomite rights, and then, of course, equity, which is nothing but racism slash socialism. You're supporting secular, humanistic, positivistic laws, an anti-biblical nuclear family chaos, and a general hedonistic, narcissistic value system throughout the world. I would never go to uh, Afghanistan and fight against them when, you know, our army's got the sodomite flag, you know, gay, they're celebrating gay, gay pride, sodomite pride in our military. And they're teaching classes on why we have to have equity and why we have to accept uh, people who commit sodomy and fisting. We have to accept people who are perverts who think they're women and dress up like women. It's That's it, gross perversion. And right now, our Government, our civil government, although what we're doing in Ukraine I think is correct, is a force of evil in the world. It really is. <clears throat> it also not only does not recognize or confess Jesus as Lord and Christ, which it has a moral obligation to do, but it's actively hostile to the true Christian religion and God's revealed moral law. It is immoral to work within such a military and help spread such satanic teaching in other nations. It's immoral. I don't see how a Christian could serve in our military today. It seems to me if you were a Christian and you actively lived as a Christian and talked like a Christian, you'd be kicked out of the military. It seems to me. And of course, the United States has been very active in helping Muslims in Iraq and Afghanistan rebuild infrastructure, including Muslim schools and even mosques. Christians have no business subsidizing their dedicated enemies with taxpayer dollars, the enemies of Christ and his people. These people hate Christians and want to kill Christians. Many Muslims in that part of the world would like to murder Christians, and some already have. 
In fact, Christians had far more freedom under Saddam Hussein than those who replaced him. Christianity is basically becoming extinct in Iraq because they're getting killed so much and they have to flee. They either flee or get killed. Under Saddam, who was basically a secular humanist, you know, he, 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 gave the, he spoke the Muslim line because the people liked it, but he couldn't care less about Islam. He was a dictator. But he protected the Christians. <clears throat> Likewise, the wicked dictator in Syria, Bashar al-Assad, gives Christians more freedom and safety than the Muslims being supported by the United States. That's true. He does not persecute the Christians. that our civil officials want to replace him with. Our civil officials are giving arms and supporting men who are more detrimental to Christians than the wicked dictator of uh, uh, Syria. Now, I don't like him, but I don't like the people opposing him either. We have no business supporting them. The United States has a secular humanistic civil government that allows religious pluralism in the private sphere, in its foreign policy, it has no regard for Yahweh, Christ, God's law, Christianity at all. It's anti-Christ. It's anti-Christian. Totally. In its policies. Now, what it's doing in Ukraine is good, but they're not doing it for the right reasons. They're not doing it out of a biblical world and life view. They're doing it out of pragmatic reason, you know, power politics reasons. <clears throat> a Christian's foreign policy must be dictated by Scripture, not atheistic pragmatism or power politics. Having noted these things, the United States and our Constitution are still far superior to other nations because of the influence of the Bible and biblical Christianity on our founders and previous cult and our uh, previous culture. Our Constitution worked fairly well when the vast majority of Americans were professing Christians. The public schools used to have Bible classes. The public schools all used to open with prayer. Uh, the people, most people were Christians. That was the worldview. But once secular humanism takes over, and did take over, pretty much, uh, they're not friendly to Christianity at all, especially the Democrats. They're, they're all antichrists. There are some conservative Republicans that are professing Christians. As younger generations move away from the Bible to so-called equity, racism, and, which is nothing but racism and socialism, the full recognition of gross sexual perversions, homosexuality, adultery, no-fault divorce, widespread fornication, living out of wedlock, the transgender perversion, etc., and statism, our liberties will be progressively be lost. Because liberty comes from the Bible. Liberty comes from the Word of God. There's a reason that Northern Europe and the, the nations that were once Protestant were the most prosperous and had the greatest freedoms. It's from the Bible. It's not from secular humanists. It's not from the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment produced the French Revolution, one of the most bloody revolutions in history. Over 40,000 people had their heads chopped off, including the king and his uh, wife. Those people are not f in favor of freedom. It is also wrong and immoral for professing Christian to serve in, Russia, in the Russian armed forces in that Russia is a criminal mafia state 
that seeks to expand its borders and influence through murder, conquest, rape, pillage, theft, and the widespread destruction of private property and infrastructure. It's one of the most evil governments in the whole world. Vladimir Putin's hero that he looks up to as the great leader and example is Stalin, who I noted is one of the most evil, satanic, despicable, criminal, murderous political leaders in history. A true Christian would go to prison or flee Russia before murdering innocent men, women, and children. Those missile attacks recently, a baby died. I remember one where a pregnant woman died. She was in the hospital to give birth and she was killed by a missile. That is evil. That is despicable. We should pray imprecatory prayers regarding Putin and his military leadership and the political leadership every single day and their soldiers. If you're, I don't care if you've been drafted or not. You don't have to go. You don't have to shoot your gun. You can put up your arms and surrender. It's better to get shot or go to prison than it is to murder innocent women and children. Number three. We can infer from the Seventh Commandment's requirement to seek to protect life and historical examples in Scripture, for example, Abraham, that it is lawful and good to come to the aid of a Christian nation that has been attacked by, wicked, by a wicked country that is simply attempting to expand its borders. The example of the Christian cantons in Switzerland who binded themselves together for mutual defense when any canton or city was attacked is an excellent example of this principle. And, of course, Abraham... A nation, of course, has limited resources and cannot function as the policeman of the world without going bankrupt or spreading its power too thin. Not even the United States can do that anymore. Now, we were kind of the world's policemen, at least of the oceans, after World War II. The United nation, it was the United States Navy that guaranteed free shipping so that capitalism could flourish. Therefore, a Christian country must focus on protecting other Christians. The civil magistrate has a moral obligation to serve Yahweh with fear, trust in Christ, and acknowledge him as king. Psalm 2, 10-12. And you don't see Israel helping pagan nations in the Old Testament. Now, if, if Judah was, was solid, you got Judah, if northern Israel was solidly Christian, which they weren't, I mean, it's all only biblical, and they weren't, they were worshipping idols, and they were attacked by, let's say, Assyria or somebody, and it wasn't a judgment where God says, you know, they have to be attacked and die, uh, Judas would have come to their defense, but they didn't. Well, an alliance with northern Israel was wrong because of their idolatry and paganism. Kings are to be foster fathers and queens nursing mothers to the Christ church, Isaiah 49, 22-23. <clears throat> the protection and nurture of the Savior's people, his sheep, must take pri top priority in Christian foreign policy. Okay, I'm not interested, you know, if you want to watch something about conservatism and power politics, there's tons of stuff on the web. I'm talking about a Christian view. When we couple this biblical teaching with a requirement not to make covenants with a heathen, we see the outlines of a Christian foreign policy. If Protestants had been stronger, more numerous, and more organized, they could have come to the aid of the Huguenots in France who were being murdered by Romanists. If this had occurred, perhaps there were to be a healthy Reformed Church in France today, but there is not. They were slaughtered. I think 16,000 alone were killed on, was it St. Bartholomew's Day or something? The massacre. 16,000 were killed in like one day by Roman Catholics. They were betrayed because 
they had agreed, they had had sort of a, a peace settlement, and then they, they turned on him and killed him. At the direction, of course, is the wicked Roman Catholic Church. Now, of course, it is important that we recognize that there are certain differences between a Christian nation that exists after the close of the canon of Scripture and the Old Testament nation of Israel. For example, in Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20, where God gives instructions on the duty of the righteous king, he requires that the head of the civil government is not to multiply horses, verse 16. Now, horses at that time in history were primarily used for warfare, both for chariots and cavalry. If you were shipping stuff, economic goods, you didn't use a, a donkey, you didn't use a horse. This is essentially a command not to build up the military strength beyond what was necessary for a defensive war. This is related to the teaching in the Torah that if Israel was faithful to God's law word, Yahweh would give them peace and victory over their enemies. That's, you find that in Deuteronomy 28, 1, 7, 10, 13, etc. This concept is reiterated by David, Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we'll remember the name of the Lord our God. And of course, see Psalm 33, 16 to 17. So Israel was a, was a uh, covenant nation, unique in salvation history, with some things that were unique to Israel that don't apply to Christian states today. Now, this command would be equivalent today to saying, do not multiply tanks, jets, attack helicopters, etc. The old covenant people were not to develop a superior military with technology and numbers because, number one, Yahweh would defend them and give them peace if they habitually obeyed God's law. Number two, if they did have a large superior military, they would be tempted to attribute their victories to their own strength and ingenuity. They would not learn to rely on God. They would become proud and exalt self. In fact, David gloried in his when David gloried in his power and military achievements by numbering the fighting men of the nation, <coughs> Yahweh diminished them by sending a plague. 2 Samuel 24, 1-7. God backed up this teaching by many supernatural interventions in war to destroy and defeat Israel's enemies. God doesn't do that today. You see, there's a different situation. God doesn't ray down boulders that, you know, 100-pound boulders on the heads of our enemies or send angels in the middle of the night to slay 100,000 Assyrians. With the close of the canon, the time of sign gifts and supernatural interventions has ceased. 1 Corinthians 13, 8-12. Now, God intervenes in history all the time, and he does so providentially. And one of my great, to me, the, one of the great examples is the Battle of Midway, where everything went almost perfectly for the United States to destroy all four of the Japanese carriers. They had trouble finding the ships. The torpedo planes get there first, which were very slow and very ineffective. And at that time in the war, our torpedoes were terrible. Most of them didn't explode. They were defective. So they get all the ships, the airplanes up in the air to, do, to shoot down all these torpedo planes. And they're, I think they're all shot down. Everybody dies except one pilot who, if you saw the movie, he's in the water. That's a true story. So when the, the bombers that are effective come, the dive bombers come, uh, they're, gassing up, they're gassing up and getting ready for another battle. They're not prepared. And, and the planes that are in the air are really far low because they just finished with these other people. It was, it was a perfect providential ordering of events for victory. So that happens in history all the time. But you don't have supernatural interventions like in Old Testament Israel. 
So it's not wrong for us to have lots of tanks and attack helicopters and, and good weapons. The requirements of faith and obedience remain. Christ does bless a Christian people or nation that keeps God's covenant. Psalm 33, 12. In addition, no amount of military might can save a nation from the wrath of the Lamb if that people or nation forgets God and chooses a path of idolatry, lawlessness, and evil. <coughs> Russia, uh, at the beginning of this war, was far superior to Ukraine far superior in numbers and military equipment. Now, things have been evened out through help from the West since then. But they made incredibly stupid decisions, and because of corruption, a lot of their equipment was not very good. Proverbs 14, 34, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Psalm 9, 17, The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. So the principles of the covenant still apply. Supernatural interventions belong to the era of when the canon was still open. The point is, is that even though as a Christian people we must trust and obey God for covenant blessings, even on the battlefield we have to trust God, we are not forbidden from developing cutting-edge weapons that give us a material advantage over our enemies. It is important, however, that we trust God for victories, constantly pray to him for aid, and give him all the glory when victory is achieved. So, there's a lot of principles in the Old Testament that, that are stated to Israel that apply to us. But there's some things that only apply to Israel. That's the point I'm making. You know, because somebody could say, well, hey, Israel wasn't allowed to build up their offensive military and have horses. So we shouldn't have all these tanks and stuff. Well, there's some differences. All right. So let's talk about applications of the war in Ukraine. When applying biblical principles to current national events, that are there are certain difficulties that arise. For one thing, <clears throat> neither the United States or Ukraine are explicitly Christian countries with Christian constitutions. We're certainly not a Christian country. Our constitution does not recognize Christ as king. And our law order is secular humanistic today and downright evil. But these countries do contain, consist primarily of professing Christians. It's still the number one religion in the United States. It's falling ever downward, sad to say. <clears throat> Should the, and Ukraine is 98% professing Christian. Should the United States support Ukraine in its attempt to defend itself from Russian aggression and conquest? And there are a number of reasons why supporting Ukraine is the moral right thing to do. So I've, everything I've said so far... Uh, we're in the third sermon on this. Everything I've said so far is the basis, the foundation for what I'm about to say. Number one, there's no question but that militaries, uh, Ukraine's military actions against Russia are a just form of warfare. Russia violated Ukraine's territory and attacked Ukraine without any lawful reason whatsoever. There was absolutely no threat of imminent attack by Ukraine or the European Union. All such talk by Putin is a blatant lie. Europe has been very peaceful and almost pacifist since World War II. I mean, if you look at Europe, they spend very little money on defense. They're not interested in warfare. They're not interested in imperialism anymore. They, you know, after World War I and World War II, they kind of learned their lesson. So this idea that oh, Europe's out to get Russia, they're going to attack Russia, that's complete and utter nonsense. They haven't been preparing for it. There hasn't been a word of it. And, of course, they were buying all this Russian gas and oil 
why would they attack Russia when that's where they were getting their, their gas and oil? In addition, the Russian Federation signed the Budapest Memorandum of 1994 guaranteeing the borders of Ukraine if Ukraine handed over their nuclear weapons, which they did. That was the agreement. We'll honor your borders. We'll prom- we promise not to invade you. We promise to recognize these borders. Just hand over your nuclear weapons. And they did. What the Russian Federation is doing in Ukraine is murder. Men, women, children, pregnant women, babies, widows. Widows are dying. Christian widows. Christian women. Pregnant Christian women are dying. Theft on a grand scale and mass destruction. The Ukrainians have a moral right from God to kill every Russian soldier who comes into into their country. And we should pray for those soldiers to die. Either surrender or die. They have no business trying to shooting at innocent people who have not invaded them. They're involved in an unjust war. What they're doing is absolutely wicked. The point here is that the United States and the European Union is helping a just, righteous cause that is not sinful or wrong one iota. Okay, so let's get that right out of the way. The arguments of Tucker Carlson, and, you know, I like, I like a, what, a lot of what he says when he's not talking about Ukraine, a lot of what he says is, is interesting. But when he talks about Ukraine, he's completely off his rocker. And, of course, various Trumpists, these right-wing lunatics, that Ukraine is uh, very, very far away. It's far away from us. It's on the other side of the world. And it's not our problem. And or that Ukraine has traditionally been within Russia's sphere of influence, so we should do nothing. That view has more in common with Machiavelli and Henry Kissinger than Moses, Jesus, or Paul. It's not my problem. They're killing, mur- they're murdering pregnant Christian women and babies, but it's not my problem. It's far away. What kind of an argument is that? That's not a biblical argument. That's pragmatism. Some even argue that Russia's attack was justified because Ukraine was getting too close to Europe, or Ukraine is corrupt. Well, a nation is never justified in attacking another nation because we do not like their friends or allies. If Mexico makes an alliance with Russia and becomes friends with Russia, we can stop trading with Mexico. We can close the borders with Mexico, but we don't have a right to go over there and start killing Mexicans. Ukraine came out of the fold of communism and has had several serious problems with corruption. Communism is intrinsically corrupt. But it is not near as corrupt as the Russian Federation, where oligarchs, journalists, and political opponents are murdered on a regular basis. There are dozens and dozens of examples of people who were murdered by Putin and his cronies. Murdered in cold blood. Even people living in Great Britain were murdered. Moreover, 98% of Ukrainians are professing Christians. If we are going to help a people in crisis under unlawful murder, destruction, and oppression, helping Ukraine is much more justified than the Korean War or Vietnam or Iraq. Now, one could argue Vietnam had a lot of Roman Catholics in the South. Um, Korea does have a lot of Protestants now. (coughs) But, you know, what's wrong with helping a people that's 98% professing Christian? Is that wrong? 
Should we look the other way and just let Russia kill them all? Enslave them? And then number two. The United States, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland signed the Budapest Memorandum of 1994 guaranteeing Ukraine's borders. Quote, this is from the memorandum, to respect the independence and sovereignty and the existing borders of Ukraine. That was signed by the Russian Federation officials. Back then it was the, the drunk, I forgot his name. Oh, Boris Yeltsin. There is a moral obligation that is rooted in the Budapest Memorandum to provide assistance to Ukraine, including military hardware and supplies, should the need arise. Now, it's written kind of poorly, it's kind of vague, but it makes clear that assistance will be provided. It doesn't promise that we'll get involved militarily ourselves, but it does pr promise assistance. This is a lawful covenant, and the United States and Great Britain should keep their agreement, which thankfully they have to a certain point thus far. If Trump gets in there, we, may not, we might not keep the agreement. He might veto it. I don't know. It's hard to figure out where his position is because he's a very inarticulate man. Uh, this worship of Trump is mind-boggling. I don't understand it at all. Was he, is he way better than the Democrats? Yeah, certainly. He was a, compared to the Democrats, he was a good president. But he's an egomaniac uh, who's not articulate. And he is not, certainly not a Christian. But what about Tucker Carlson and the Trumpists who say, why are you wasting so much money on a country halfway around the world? We should be spending that money here in America. Have you heard that one? I hear it all the time. Well, the United States wastes trillions of dollars on programs that are totally unscriptural. Welfare programs are totally unbiblical. And all they do is they subsidize evil and the poor. They subsidize lazy people. Now, sometimes it's really needed, but they're supposed to get it from the church or their family, not the state. The Ukrainian situation is a just war, a righteous cause, and we promise to help, so we need to keep our promises. That has to be said. The arguments of certain conservatives and populists regarding Ukraine are based on selfishness, covenant-breaking, and a secular humanistic form of pragmatism. And it's that pragmatism is what we hired a bunch of monsters that were Nazis who murdered people to work in the CIA and to work in the FBI and to hunt communists and all that after World War II. That's pragmatism. You take men that should be put to death and you give them money. <laughs> and you give them a job. As a nation who is already a part of NATO, when are we going to help? Are we going to wait until Russia invades Poland? It is wise to stop warmongers at the beginning of their aggression and not wait until they have half of Europe. If Europe had been prepared, you know, they practiced this policy of appeasement with Adolf Hitler until Poland in September, what was it, September 1st, 1939. They gave uh, Hitler a bit, over a third of Czechoslovakia, and then, of course, he invaded the rest. If we had stood up to Hitler then and said no and put troops in Czechoslovakia, I don't think he would have attacked. Now, he, he, he might have attacked, but we could have stopped him much earlier. We didn't have to wait till 65 million people were dead. We should have stopped people like Hitler, people like Stalin, people like uh, Putin. They don't listen to reason. The only thing that stops them is force. 
We're not to wait until they have half of Europe. Putin has made it very clear that his desire is to reestablish the Soviet Empire of Stalin. He's said that in speeches. Now, what about the argument that helping Ukraine may lead to a nuclear war? There's another thing I hear all the time. Oh, we're, we're heading toward nuclear war. If we submit to the threats of men like Hitler, Stalin, or Putin, because of what may happen, then there will never be peace. All you have to do is get a nuke, and then you can start invading your neighbors, and nobody's going to do anything. Well, we stopped uh, North Korea from taking over the South. And China, of course, helped. And Russia at that time did have nuclear weapons, and they didn't use them. Uh, we, we fought in Vietnam from 64 or so to 75. And, of course, they were being helped by China and by the Soviet Union, both of which had nuclear weapons at that time. Um, I think things are a little less stable now than they were actually under the Soviet Union. But we can't let possible threats deter us from doing the right thing. Putin has engaged in an unlawful, immoral, unjustified war of aggression. If we do nothing to help, when as a nation we have already promised to help, then we are guilty corporately of sin and covenant breaking. We have to help. We must do what is right and pray for God to pour out his wrath on Putin, the Russian government, and their military. The only way to stop men like Putin is force. We must help Ukraine kill as many Russian soldiers as possible and destroy as much of their military hardware as possible until they give up. One does not compromise or negotiate with murderers and thieves who kill and destroy. One must put a bullet in their head and send them straight to hell where they belong. Now, there's another conservative show that I, was, I like to watch on YouTube. He's a uh, Syrian Christian, and his symbol is a lion. I forgot the name of the show. He's into, he makes money business-wise, but they cover all these topics. And they were super upset... Uh, the senator from, what, North Carolina, Lindsey Graham, is that his name, said, hey, it's the best money we ever spent helping you kill Russians. And they said, oh, how wicked, how evil, how he's a warmonger. No, that is the right attitude. Now, we don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, we're, you know, but they need to be stopped. And the only way to stop somebody like that who's committing murder and rape and pillage is to kill them if they don't surrender. It just shows how people are so pragmatic today and they think, they don't think, you have to think biblically. Don't think like Henry Kissinger, who was a very wicked man, and Nixon and these knuckleheads, these people who run the CIA and hire Nazis. But isn't the Ukrainian Orthodox Church a corrupt, perhaps even apostate form of Christianity? It's another thing I've heard. Well, although they're not as bad as the Roman Catholicism or the Russian Orthodox Church, which is full of FSB agents whose head is a warmongering antichrist and Putin lapdog, there are serious problems with the Ukrainian church. But as John Calvin has said, and I'm just paraphrasing, I didn't take the time to look it up, although it may be a false church as to well-being, it is a true church as to being. In other words, there are true Christians there. We cannot condone some of their teaching and practices, for example, worshiping icons and praying to dead saints. Yet nevertheless, there are many real Christians there and we should help protect them from murderous Russian imperialism, if possible. And we're doing that. It's the only thing in this presidency that Joe Biden has done that's good, is support Ukraine. I can't think of anything else he's done that's good. The guy's satanic to the core. The Bible is the perfect, infallible word of the living God. It speaks to every area of life, either explicitly or by implication. 
As Christians, we must not follow conservative or populist fads, but rather learn to think biblically regarding every topic, even ones that are regarded as political or secular. We have to develop a distinctly Christian view of war and a distinctly Christian view of foreign policy. We have to. Our study about when war is justified and lawful from a biblical perspective should inoculate us against ignorant, misguided, television personalities and politicians. Let us pray for Ukraine's victory and pray imprecatory prayers against Putin, his cronies, and Russia. There's a whole bunch of conservatives out there that just want to stop helping Ukraine. And they're wrong. And Trump's comments, well, if, I, if I'm in office, I'm going to stop the war in one day, is arrogant foolishness. He's an egomaniac. Now, don't get me wrong. Trump's way better than the Democrats. And if, you know, I would vote for him 100 times over any Democrat. But the guy's an arrogant maniac. And he's very inarticulate. And this, this worship of Trump, uh, this, this Trump love, uh, baffles me. <laughs> it, it baffles me from a Christian perspective. A guy who you know divorced the mother of his children and has been divorced a number of times and has lived as a heathen and is still a heathen. He's totally pro-homosexual and all these things. Why people look up to him is beyond me. But anyway, that's our take on the Christian view of war. That is, in my view, the Christian our Christian attitude should be toward the war in Ukraine. <clears throat> we ought to be supporting it. It's it is just. It is good. If we have the ability to, we ought to do it. And this idea that, you know, just ignore it, it's, it's not going to go away. Putin's not going to stop. When do, we, when, do we have to, when do we start supporting somebody? When he gets to Poland? You know, learn from history. Look at what happened in World War II with Hitler. You have to learn from history. If you don't stop people like Napoleon or Hitler, they'll just keep going. The only thing that will stop them is force. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your holy word. Bless this message and uh, help Ukraine, Lord, have victory. Give them wisdom. Give them ability. Protect them. Give them great victory over Russia. And bring great revival of true Christianity to Ukraine and Russia. In Jesus' name, amen.